earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's part 10 in the Acts of the Resurrection Life series. If you missed any parts, the podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Our title today, If There's a Will, There's a Work, brings us to Acts chapter 13. As we continue our thematic journey and adventure through Acts, we'll once again trace the manifestations of the power of the Holy Spirit and watch as they surface in the day-to-day lives and ministry of the followers of Jesus. But before we do, I'd like to share a rather unusual story of evangelism. Early one summer morning, along a stretch of beautiful beach, and friends, if you have a favorite beach, just picture that in your mind. For my wife and I, having both grown up in northeastern New Jersey, we envisioned the New Jersey beach along the Atlantic Ocean. We always called it going down the shore. Well, anyway, an elderly man with a cane was walking carefully along the sand where the tide had receded and left exposed. A younger man was sitting in a beach chair somewhat further back, and his eyes zeroed in on the actions of the elderly man. Evidently, while the old gent was walking along, he constantly looked down at the sand and regularly bent down and picked something up and tossed it into the ocean. The younger man became fascinated as he sat in his chair, watching this routine, so much so that he got up and strained to see just what this old gent was doing. He finally noticed he was searching for starfish. Every time he saw one lying helplessly in the sand, unable to get back into the water on its own, the old gent would lovingly pick it up and gently toss it back into the ocean. Now, the younger guy just kept staring at this little routine, and his curiosity was piqued even more. So he decided to walk up to the elderly man and ask him, Why are you doing all this? The elderly man replied, Well, You can see that the starfish are left behind after the tide goes out. If they can't make their way back to the water, they'll dry up and die under the hot summer sun. The younger guy quickly shot back, But but there's our endless miles of beach, and there must be millions of starfish. Surely you don't think you can save them all. What difference can your efforts possibly make? Well, slowly the fragile old man bent down again and picked up another starfish. As he gently flung it back into the ocean, he turned to the younger guy and grinned. It sure made a difference to that one. After hearing that, the young guy was deeply touched. 
Since he was a Christian, he began reflecting on the spiritual parallel or application of the old gent's actions. He was reminded of how easy it is to become discouraged by the sheer magnitude of the task Jesus has set before us. He was led to the conclusion that we often fail to focus on the value of each individual person to the Lord. It was an aha moment for him, and he drew the parallel that, in a sense, we're all called to be faithful and survey our beaches, so to speak, and make a difference for this one person or that one person in the name of Jesus Christ. Friends, I propose that this was precisely the mindset that the early followers of Jesus adopted. Instead of becoming completely overwhelmed by Jesus' parting words in Acts 1.8, which is really just a morphed version of the Great Commission, you remember Acts 1.8, don't you? You can recite it from memory, right? Let me help you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, remember, friends, a few sessions ago I suggested we each have our own Jerusalem, those closest to us, our own Judea, perhaps our relatives or neighbors, our own Samaria, perhaps our work colleagues or school buddies, and our own ends of the earth. You know, those unexpected strangers we bump into now and then. And please listen up. Those first Christ followers, instead of being completely overwhelmed by the magnitude of the mission they were called to, I believe they envisioned the known world in geographically manageable portions. I can't imagine Jerusalem sounding very ominous, or even Judea or Samaria. But then there's that somewhat ambiguous phrase, and to the ends of the earth, or as the King James calls it, the utmost part of the earth. Or, the NASB says, the remotest parts of the earth. It's an interesting word choice here, friends, and worth uncovering. It literally refers to the particular extreme or most remote place. Friends, have any of you ever ordered from a Land's End catalog? Or now online? Back in the day, I used to get Land's End catalogs when I worked in New York City. I had no idea that Land's End was a real place. It's the Cape in Cornwall County in the southernmost point in England. And although it's not literally the end of the earth, some people view it that way, probably how it originally got its name. In a similar sense, when we read the New Testament, we should understand this expression to the ends of the earth as a metaphor, a metaphor referring to the gospel being spread to the Gentile world, particularly to the distant parts of the Roman Empire. Recall I shared that Acts closes with the Apostle Paul in jail in Rome. In Acts 13, we find the only other occurrence of this expression. And actually, friends, it's part of a quote from Isaiah 49.6, where Israel's God says in part, I will also make you, Israel, a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Notice, God clearly indicated that his chosen people were not to keep their religion, if you will, to themselves, but to spread God's message of salvation to their Gentile neighbors. I believe we could safely say that God originally intended the Jewish people to be his first evangelists. 
Friends, the heart of God has always loved all nations, and Israel was chosen to reveal the one true God to everyone. The message of God's love and saving power from sin was to be broadcast throughout the world, and Jesus' call upon his followers was to pattern their mission after his outline in Acts 1.8. We can observe this pattern by noticing that their witness begins in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1 through chapter 8, verse 4. Then Acts 8, verse 5 through Acts 12, verse 25, journals their witness in Judea and Samaria. Finally, Acts chapter 13 through chapter 28 chronicles their witness to the ends of the earth, symbolically represented by Rome, the seat of the Roman Empire and Gentile world. So it's not coincidental at all, friends, that in the final chapter of Acts, we find the Apostle Paul in Rome, under house arrest, yet spreading the gospel in that influential pagan stronghold and nerve center of the empire. So, let's dig into Acts 13. This is a pivotal chapter in Acts, signifying the second half of the book. Jerusalem kind of drops into the background, and for a while the two Antiochs become the focus. Just like there are two Bethlehems in Israel, there are two Antiochs, one in the region of Syria and the other in the region of Pisidia, and why we sometimes see the phrase Pisidian Antioch. The first missionary thrust carries the gospel from Syrian Antioch to the island of Cyprus and then on to the cities in the southern part of the Roman province of Galatia. During this time, Syrian Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire, Rome and Alexandria being the first and second. It was Syrian Antioch, you may recall, that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians, differentiating them from the Jewish worshippers in the synagogue. So it was the logical place to jumpstart the Gentile missionary movement. Well, with that as the backstory, let's begin at Acts 13.1. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Friends, I need to stop here for a moment, because we could just read right past these opening five verses as if they were simply matter-of-fact statements. But there are two important truths embedded here that we can't bypass. First, the NIV says, worshiping the Lord, in verse 2. Both the King James and the New American Standard say, ministering to the Lord. This main word here, worshiping or ministering, has a broader meaning that includes to serve, perform religious service, minister on behalf of a community. It may also refer to an official priest of God who performs certain works on behalf of God and God's people. Friends, what I'm getting at here is this. Have you ever thought of your Christian life or any part of it as ministering to the Lord? 
We absolutely cannot miss this expression of devotion through ministering to or worshiping or serving God, because we see here that in ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit speaks and gives direction. There are times, friends, when the Spirit speaks to a gathered community. And second, once again, Luke pulls back the curtain and gives us another glimpse of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, friends, we learn a few very key truths about the Holy Spirit in these opening verses of Acts 13. And these truths counteract the errors that are abounding in the cults and even in segments of the body of Christ. In 13, 2 through 11, the following truths are evident. First, in 13.2, the Holy Spirit is personal. He speaks, and the personal pronouns, I and me, are used. Second, in 13.4-5, the Holy Spirit is purposeful. He sends Saul and Barnabas on his mission. This clearly implies that the Holy Spirit has the capacity to make decisions and choose where to send people. And third, in 13, 9 through 11, the Holy Spirit is powerful. Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit, which means he's filled with what? Power. Saul's spirit-endowed power was directed toward Iliamus, the sorcerer in Paphos, who was perverting the way of the Lord. Verse 10. Verse 11 even calls the Holy Spirit the hand of the Lord. So, friends, we see in chapter 13 that the Holy Spirit possesses a will and has a work to accomplish. In verses 13 through 15, we see Paul and his troop sailing to Perga in Pamphylia, then going on to Pisidian Antioch, where they entered a synagogue on the Sabbath. After the reading, they were invited to bring a word of exhortation to the congregation. So we see in verses 16 through 41, Paul shares a message of encouragement that begins with a resume of Israel's history, emphasizing God's redemptive work from Abraham to the reign of David. This resume summarizes Israel's history, also retells God's intervention and revelation to the Israelites over the years. Naturally, his greatest revelation in history is Jesus the anointed Messiah and his resurrection. Now, friends, let's realize that the New Testament proclamation of the gospel simply continues the Old Testament practice of formulating confessions of faith in the context of real-life historical events. In other words, recording and confessing God's mighty acts in history. And the mightiest act of God in history was raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead finalizes the salvation part of God's redemptive plan, and this message of salvation is now available to people of all nations, Jews and non-Jews alike. God has worked through all generations to prepare the way for the Messiah and the Messiah's work to bring salvation to all. This truth became an integral part of the Christian proclamation of the gospel. Friends, this is precisely why it's so important we don't lose our appreciation for the Jewish foundation of our own Christian faith. We should thank God for that little band of Jewish Christians in the first century who understood their call to be a light to the Gentiles and carried the message of salvation to the ends of the world that they knew. During Saul and Barnabas' visit to that synagogue, they summed up their message with, 
We had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you rejected it, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. And here's the quote from Isaiah 49, 6. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, friends, please allow me to add a few additional comments about ministering to the Lord. And I just want to say this so that we don't deprive ourselves of the simplicity of walking with the Lord and ministering to Him. We tend to make our walk with God overly complicated, don't we? But listen to what Paul had in mind when he told the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians 11.13, And remember, he was originally the legalist of legalists. I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The New Living Translation says, You will be led away from your pure and simple devotion to Christ. Friends, I want to be absolutely certain we don't miss these very important characterizations of our Christian walk because, as we saw in our opening verses, it was in the midst of worshiping and serving and ministering to God that the Holy Spirit spoke and gave direction. Hey, please listen carefully here, brothers and sisters. Do we honestly think that the Spirit of God owes us new revelations or new marching orders when we're living haphazard, undisciplined, and compromising lives? I don't think I have to answer that, do I? Well, back to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. A quick summation tells us that the Holy Spirit sent Saul and Barnabas to the island of Cyprus and to the town of Paphos. I find it very interesting that as this journey unfolds, who we find waiting for them, none other than the Jewish sorcerer and false prophet, Eliamus. And Eliamus was actually the attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Sergius had sent for Paul and Barnabas because he wanted to hear the word of God. And unless we think that all went smoothly, we're told in 13.8 that Eliamus opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Acts is reminding us over and over that each new movement of the gospel and the Spirit of God is met with opposition and resistance. There is often a power struggle at work, a struggle between the kingdom of the world or the devil and the kingdom of God. Here again, there's a concerted effort by the forces of darkness, demonic powers, represented by Iliamus the sorcerer and false prophet. Hmm, any chance this brings back memories, friends, of Acts chapter 8, when the gospel was getting off the ground in Jerusalem? After the stoning of Stephen, the first encounter Peter had was with Simon the sorcerer. And here in Acts 13, Eliamis the sorcerer had a satanic agenda, that of thwarting any discussion between Saul, now called Paul, and Barnabas and the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Friends, in tandem with my opening story about the older gent picking up starfish off the shoreline and throwing them back into the ocean, imagine Saul and Barnabas strolling along the beach in Paphos. Picture them reaching down and picking up the lives of Sergius Paulus and the sorcerer Eliamus and bringing them into the ocean of God's redeeming love. In those two individuals' lives, Saul and Barnabas certainly made a difference, didn't they? 
They didn't just let their souls dry up and die. Instead of being completely overwhelmed by the magnitude of the mission they were called to carry out, Paul, Barnabas, and the others sought to make a difference to this one or that one in the name and power of Jesus Christ through the indwelling and empowering Holy Spirit. This power was an offensive power. It enabled and motivated them to be proactive and boldly go where no one had ever gone before. I find it interesting that the filling of the Holy Spirit functions like bookends in chapter 13. In verse 9, we read that Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 52, after Saul and Barnabas' message in the synagogue was given, we learn that the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And what's the divine payoff? The outcome, if you will? As I mentioned a few sessions ago, God ultimately prevailed in concert with the disciples' participation. In 13.12, we read that Sergius Paulus saw the miraculous demonstration of the Spirit's power when Paul engaged the sorcerer, and he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. And in 13.48, when some Gentiles heard the message, we read, They were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and many believed and received eternal life. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Friends, as this mission story unfolds in chapter 13, I don't want us to miss another of the words we're also tracing, the word wonder. In 13.12, recall Sergius Paulus's reaction? When the proconsul saw what happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Periodically, I'll remind us of the three words we're tracing in Acts, miracles, wonders, and signs. Today, I'd like to take just a few seconds and focus on wonders. Wonders calls attention to a miracle's effect on the viewer or witness. They become struck with wonder or amazement. Friends, it's also exciting to track the frequency of the word amazed or astonished. In Acts, I counted seven occurrences of either amazed or astonished. In the Gospels, this is the response of people to the miracles performed by Jesus. And the people's amazement is connected to some aspect of his salvation ministry. Well, in Acts, we see that this amazement or astonishment or wonder of people continues as the Holy Spirit empowers the disciples of Jesus with the abilities to perform miracles. Friends, I believe the challenge and application of chapter 13 for us all today may be summarized in the following questions. First, do we honestly believe in our hearts that the Holy Spirit is personal, purposeful, and powerful? Second, if the Holy Spirit is indeed purposeful, does he have a will and a work for me? Third, does the Holy Spirit decide my courses of action? Does the Holy Spirit ever set in motion a plan with the goal of presenting the gospel message through a human agent? Me? And fourth, does the Holy Spirit's power enable me to be proactive and share the message with boldness? Has that ever resulted in someone turning to the Lord? 
Friends, I've also enjoyed tracking the occurrences of boldness in the book of Acts. I've counted eight times. Boldness is also an interesting word. Basically, there's one New Testament Greek word for boldness and a slight variation of it with a suffix attached. Together, these two words carry the idea of speaking freely, openly, and frankly without constraint, assurance and confidence, or boldness in spirit and demeanor. And my hope, friends, is that we can all see that the indwelling Holy Spirit desires for us to have these qualities, and providing the power for us to exhibit these qualities, I believe, as the elderly gent in our opening story did, we should be more conscious of eyeing or surveying our beaches and picking up those individual starfish and bringing them back to the ocean of God's redeeming love. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I can see that we're nearing the end of our program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on these teachings and what this program has meant to you. A listener recently wrote in with reference to Part 8 in this series and said, Another great message! It does give one pause as we try to take time to examine the job that churches are really doing in this hurting world. Thanks for the reminder. Well, thank you for those sober and encouraging words. And remember, friends, all podcasts of A Word from the Word are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. That's faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And please share these podcasts with family or friends that may be touched or blessed by these teachings. And if a word from the word is blessing or edifying you, please join our team of supporters. People like you are keeping this program, this listener-supported program, on the air. So please ask me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends, and remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 